Isaiah chapter 49, which is on page 520. So that's page 520, Isaiah chapter 49, reading verses 1 to 10. Starting at verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to whom... To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them, and lead them beside springs of water. The New Testament reading is from Titus chapter 2 and is on page 844 of the Bible. That's Titus chapter 2 on page 844, verses 1 to 10. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. 
In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. So it's great when the, uh, the Bible is read so clearly. So just hear so God address you through his word. So thanks, Fiona. Um, there's a few new faces out there. I'm Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you've joined us week three of a series in the book of Titus. Uh, one of the, the programs I was watching last Monday night was a program called uh, Flash Forward. And I watched uh, episode two of it. Uh, it made no sense because I hadn't seen episode one, so I had to go back and download episode one from online and watch episode one as well. And a bit like that with Titus, if you just join us on week three, uh, it probably won't make any sense to you. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a quick sort of recap of where we've been in the book. Uh, Titus is a, a book written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Titus is a young man who's been left on an, on an island called Crete. He's been left there. Crete's an island to the southeast of Greece. It's about 200 kilometers uh, long, 30 kilometers wide. He's been left there to establish churches. And in chapter 1, uh, Paul told Titus to appoint leaders. And he said, look for the, the people who love Jesus and are gripped by a gospel of grace. They, they recognize that they are people who are undeserving of God's love. And they're just, they're just soaked in a gospel of grace. Look for people who love the truth, uh, who just devour the word of God and, and teach what is true. Look for people who are living a godly life. They're modeling what they believe by the way they live. Because in Crete there were many false teachers, uh, people who were teaching for the wrong motives and leading people astray and away from Christ. That's what we're up to. Chapter 1, we're looking at leaders. Chapter 2, he kind of widens out the lens and says, this is about the church. What about, what about the church in general? What do they need to hear? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at chapter 2 tonight. Father, it's good to gather. It's good to sing your praises. We, we thank you, Father, for, for music and the way that we can express our love for you in song. Father, thank you for this church, for every man, woman, and child that you have brought to this church. Lord, thank you that we can just stop and quieten our minds and spend this time uh, hearing you address us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Just got one question for you guys tonight. This is a question. How do we make the gospel attractive? That's our question. How do we make the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ attractive? Let me flesh that out a bit. What would make the good news of Jesus Christ attractive to your unbelieving husband, your unbelieving wife, your unbelieving mother or father or brother or sister or friend or work colleague? What is it that would make that person stop and look at Christ and say, wow, what a savior? What is it that we as a community should be doing that communicates to our community out there in Kirby 
that in his amazing love and amazing mercy, God has sent his precious son to die on a cross for us. What will make that attractive to the community out there? Now, what are you thinking? What will make the gospel attractive? Great uh, dynamic preachers who can hold a crowd and tell funny stories and get the people in with that. Uh, Why don't we do a a marketing campaign, advertising campaign? We could have banners and we can have TV adverts. Maybe that would make the gospel attractive. Best band, coolest rock band with the funkiest music and hey, people come flooding in. Now, all those things are good things, you know. We need preachers. We need people who can articulate the gospel simply and clearly, who can actually uh, clearly explain what the gospel of grace is all about, that you're forgiven, uh, not because you deserve it, because God has lavished his love on you. We need those people. Uh, We need great advertising. We need great marketing, especially in this generation. We need great music. that People walk in and they say, wow, these people, they're, they're just lifting their voices. They love God. We need those things. But what's going to make the gospel really, really attractive? And the answer is you. And you, and you, and you, and you. Your life. The way that you live. The way that you relate. The things that you do. And no, no, that's not quite what Titus says we will make the gospel attractive. We as a community, we as a church, us in relationships, this is what makes the gospel attractive. When people walk into this building through that door and they see people, and there's older people and younger people and men and women, they have very little in common with each other, but there's something about the way that they relate which is so different. And Paul is saying here that our lives are supposed to be a a walking, talking billboard for the gospel of grace. A friend of mine is a guy called Steve. Uh, he is at Barber College in the UK, trained to be a minister. He went to university, met a guy called Caleb. They both studied uh, arts law. Uh, they were both rowers. They rowed together. They were gym junkies. They trained together. They hollered together. They're just really good buddies. Uh, Caleb was a Christian. Steve wasn't. Steve came from one of those sort of um, very wealthy, very successful families Lots of ambitions for their kids. And so when Steve uh, failed his law degree, uh, parents didn't react very well. Dad kind of got angry and aggressive, and mum was just bitterly disappointed, and she cried continually. They kind of disowned him. Uh, Steve turned to Caleb. Caleb's family took him in. Steve lived with Caleb for about two or three months. And Steve talked about how Caleb's dad almost treated him like a son and sat with him and talked to him and helped him. And and Caleb's dad did that with Caleb as well. And Caleb's mum was an extraordinary woman, a very successful businesswoman, uh, running a home, loving her wife, loving her kids. And then they went to church. And Steve talked about the first time he walked into a church. And what blew him away was it was kind of like Caleb had you know, five granddads, because all these older men were sort of coming up to him, treating him like a grandson, and he had, you know, 10 fathers and 50 uncles and 100 brothers and uh, 100 mothers, and it's kind of like this one massive family. 
And so when the preacher at that church stood up and talked about Jesus and talked about how Jesus changes lives, yeah, Steve thought, yeah, I can see that. And in God's grace, Steve is now saved and actually trained to be a minister. And if you asked him, you asked him how he would save, he would kind of say, oh, I was loved into the kingdom by what I saw happening at church and in this earthly family. And I'm guessing that for many of you, that is true for you and your testimony. There were people who lived differently. There was something about Christians and the way they were related that was different. And that's kind of what Paul is saying in chapter 2 of Titus. That if you claim to follow Jesus, if you claim to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a walking, talking advertisement for the gospel of grace. No, we are. We as a church. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you're old or whether you're young, whether you're male or whether you're female. What matters is the way that you live and the way that you relate to each other. You see, we've been given a mission and the mission is to bring glory to Christ and the mission is to make the gospel attractive and to to make sure that our lives are, are, are shining radiantly for the gospel of Jesus. Look at it with me. You can't miss it in this, in this chapter. Chapter 2, verse 5. End of verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. He says, uh, younger women, the way that you, you relate, it's important because no one will malign the word of God. No one will look at your lives, younger women, and say, oh, you know, I thought the Bible said this, but actually I look at her life and I don't see that. Or maybe God's word is just a joke. Uh, end of verse 8, uh, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed. Uh, those who hate Titus and hate Paul and hate Christians and hate church, and those who oppose church may be ashamed. Why? Because they have nothing bad to say about us. Wow. <laughs> to think that someone could look at us and say, I've got not one bad thing to say about them. Or the end of verse 10. So that in every way, in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, beautiful, shining brightly. So that the words that we speak, they say, wow, yeah, I see that in the way that they live. Because society has, has blurred all our, our cross-generational boundaries. You know, young men have no respect for old men these days. He says, not in a church. It's got to be different. And society has blurred all our gender distinction. You know, we're not allowed to talk about men and women. It's just mankind. And he said, no, no, not the church. There's a difference. And society has kind of told us that you're just to be an individual. Do what you want, what satisfies you. It doesn't matter how you treat other people. And, and the Bible says, no, no, in church it matters. It matters what you do in the way you relate to each other. Because this is God's church. This is people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. This is people who belong to Christ. And friends, if that hasn't changed you, if that hasn't changed the way that you live and the way that you relate to each other, if we at Church by the Bridge are, we're no different from members of a sailing club or members of a Pilates class or, or members of any society, then, then something is wrong. Because we're supposed to be a walking, talking billboard for the gospel of grace. It's been said this. The watching world isn't hugely impressed by emotional hype of church. It's not impressed by impressive music at church. 
It's not attracted to powerful preaching or clever advertising a church. But the watching world is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness shown in loving relationships. That's what makes the gospel attractive. What will get your mum or your dad or your brother, your sister or your wife or your husband or your friend to look at Christ? It might be preaching. It might be music. But if they see you living differently and us relating differently, then hopefully Jesus will just shine from this place. Got one simple point tonight. Belief impacts behavior. What you believe must inform and change what you do. Simple as that. You ever heard the phrase that you are what you eat? What you put into your body shapes who you are. It's like the um, that documentary. I still don't know who, who, who did it. Uh, the guy supersized me. Anyone tell me who did that? Okay. About a month, I think it was, where he, he ate McDonald's, just McDonald's, for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner, just McDonald's. And you watch this documentary, and uh, over the course of a week and two weeks and three weeks and then a month, you just see his whole body change and his sodium levels rise, and the fat levels rise, and he just feels lethargic, and it's kind of like, you are what you eat. And Paul is saying something similar here. You know, what you believe, you become what you believe in many ways. You become what you believe. And if you've been gripped by grace, then that must impact you. Let me take you to the foundation of the letter again, chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. He's saying, if you've grasped grace, if you've understood that God has saved you and God has redeemed you and God has brought you by Jesus, you belong to Jesus, if you've gripped that and grasped that, you will live grace. And Paul wants his church to be a beautiful reflection of grace. So what must Titus do? Is there in verse 1, you must teach. Titus, stand there, speak to people, speak into the lives of people. What must he teach? Verse 1, sound doctrine. Healthy, wholesome, hygienic truths about God. But it's not just doctrine, is it? He doesn't quite say you must teach sound doctrine because many of us know doctrine. Many of us can pass a doctrine exam. I could give you a more college exam, and I'm sure many of us could pass a doctrine exam. He doesn't say that. He says you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Not just what you believe, but the way that you live it. What flows out of sound doctrine. The lifestyle that goes with it. The practical instructions so that the way that you live will be a bull for grace. And you see, the church in Crete was apparently more like Crete than it was like Christ. The church in Crete was more like Crete than Christ, more like the culture than it was like Christ. And the picture you get of this church in Crete was of older men and older women who were irreverent and drunkards and slandering and demanding respect because they're old or a few of the older men were getting pally with Gen X and Gen Y just to be really cool and trendy and with it and you know, and the younger women, 
Uh, they were lazy and flirtatious, and they sat around all day drinking lattes and talking about men, and they wanted everything. They wanted the, the husband and the kids and the career, and you've got this whole group of young guys in church who are competitive and arrogant and proud and on the prowl and hopeful. And, and, and it, this, is, this, is, this is God's church. This is God's church. Angry, immoral, irreverent, slanderous, back-talking, factious, crude, frivolous, and Paul weeps. He says, when somebody sees you, you're not making the gospel attractive. And I wonder, is that us? Are we more like Kiribati than we are like Christ? So where do we relate more like our culture than it is like Christ? I'm going to go through these four categories, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And I pray that God would teach each one of us how to behave and how to relate. Start with the older men, because that's where Paul starts. The older men are those who are mature in years, not just those who are reaching retirement. In that culture, it would have been around 40, but you're older than the other people. So what are the characteristics of the, of the older men in the church? Are they like the older men in the world? More critical, more cynical, demanding respect because they're old, more irritable, more patronizing, more arrogant. What, what does the older men church look like? How should grace have changed you? Look at verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. I've got two words for you older men here tonight. These are the two words, dignity and maturity. God calls you to be full of dignity and maturity. He calls you to be temperate, verse 2. Sober in thought, clear-headed, not, not rash, not quick to lash out. We're to be men who think very, very carefully, and our words are very purposeful. We're sort of level-headed kind of guys. We're called to be self-controlled in verse 2. That means that you're sensible in your mind, you're wise-headed, your mind controls your action. But I love that phrase in the middle, worthy of respect. That's the dignity. You're worthy of respect. The older man doesn't need to demand respect. It's not like some cultures that say, no, respect me because I'm old. These are the kind of guys who, when the younger people look at them, they say, that's a man I respect because I see grace at work in him. And I see he's a man who's walked with God for 30 years and you know, he's laughed with God and he's cried with God and he's faced disappointments with God and he's trusted God and he's done life and he's seen life and he's kept his head and he's just a walking, talking example of the goodness of God. He's a kind of guy who has gravitas. You know, he's just a, a very dignified older man who just trusts in God and that shines from him and our church needs those kind of guys our church especially needs and craves those kind of men they're the men who can model to us how to love your wives for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and keep on loving them how to raise children and raise them in the faith and have grandchildren and walk alongside them and teach them and train them and men of integrity and men of patience and men of kindness and men who are just oozing godliness. 
we crave those kind of men in this church. Men who are dignified and full of maturity. As he says at the end of verse 2, they will be sound in the faith, sound in love. What do you expect to say next? Faith, love, and... He would normally say hope. That's the triad, faith, love, and hope. But he doesn't. He says sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance or perseverance. He's just being realistic that walking the Christian life is a really long, slow, marathon kind of race, and you just press on and persevere. And these older men, you can say, yeah, it's just Bible and prayer, Bible and prayer, Bible, prayer, discipline. I learned that 20 years ago. I learned that 10 years ago. I'm just pressing on towards glory. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. I'm thinking of older men in my life. Um, a guy called David, who was in Oxford, older man in his 60s, who really taught me how to be a Christian husband and father, if I'm ever going to be a Christian husband and father. He modeled it to me. I didn't have that from my earthly father. Uh, I think of a guy called Mark, who was in his 70s. Uh, he'd been a Christian for 50 years. And he really modeled to me how to cope with life disappointments. I think of a guy called Harold, who was 85. He'd walked with the Lord for, since he was 15, so what's that, 70 years. And he modeled to me how to, how to die with great dignity. And um, there's another guy called Andrew. And he really modeled to me what it was like to lose health and still trust God and be content. And a guy called Dick, Dick Lucas actually, who really modeled me how to be a single man and be content with singleness and keep on serving the Lord. And we need those older men in this church. Uh, I'm thankful for some older men, older men amongst us. Are, are you these kind of men, dignity and maturity? If you take wanting to pray from this sermon, please go away and pray. That God would raise up older men like this for our church. Not bitter old men, but beautiful men full of dignity and maturity. What about the older women? What do they need to learn? I've got two words for you, or God's got two words for you. These are the two words reverence and training. Verse 3 likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slandered or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. The word reverend, verse 3, means holy. It means living with a demeanor that's fitting for the temple. To live with this right awe at God and his glory and his holiness. A kind of attitude that keeps you older women, keeps you humble and keeps you gentle. Uh, you ever met those people where they just ooze uh, God's goodness and the presence of God, you think, yeah, this is a woman who, who has walked with God. She's just a very serene, gentle, kind woman who personifies reverence. I guess the women in Crete, according to verse 3, I'm guessing that the temptation for the women in Crete was to be slanders, to be gossips, to be addicted to too much wine. You kind of get the the picture of these older women in the community and they're sitting around at two in the afternoon they're, they're drinking a glass of Merlot and a bottle of Merlot each and they're reading the NW magazine and they're just talking about celebrities or slandering their husbands and he says, no, older women, if you know Christ, if you've been gripped by grace, the Titus II woman 
is reverent and not slanderous and not addicted to wine. But the shock is actually the second one, training. Here's the shock, because in a culture where women were to be silent, what does Paul tell the women to do? Look at it with me. End of verse 3. But to, to teach, to teach what is good, to teach what is beautiful. Uh, the word in verse 4 is they can train. They're to teach and they're to train. The word train means that you, you bring someone to their senses. You, uh, you urge them, you prompt them, they need help. Now, what is it that these, these younger women need help in? And it sounds bizarre. Train them to love their husbands and children. Why do younger women need to be trained to love their husbands and children? Surely they love them. They've fallen in love with them and they've married them and they've got the kids and surely they love them. (sighs) Marriage is hard. Marriage is tough. Being a parent is tough. And what people need to to, to learn is that you need to have to learn how to, to love your husband when everything about him is annoying you and frustrating you. And you need to learn to husband when he's working 100 hours a week and you never see him. And love your kids when they are uh, taking up all your time and all your energy and all your money. And that's why they need to be trained. It doesn't come naturally. And the picture here is a beautiful, beautiful picture of a church where there's kind of uh, 50 surrogate mothers. And a younger woman can walk into church and there's an older woman there and she says, oh, my husband is working so hard, I never see him. And she can say, yeah, I remember that time and this is what we did in our marriage to help us. I've been up all night breastfeeding this child. I, know, oh, I remember that time. This is what we tried. Oh, our teenage kids, oh, I, just, I just don't know what to do. And the older woman says, yep, I know that feeling. This is what we and my husband did together. And the older women get alongside the young women and talk about cherishing their marriages and the weekends away twice a year without the kids and the importance of a regular sex life and all the way that your, your, your marriage is going to be nurtured and you're going to love your husband and love your kids. And Paul is kind of saying to the older women, older women who have walked with the Lord for a number of years and have lived life a bit, you're an encyclopedia of knowledge and wisdom. Don't hoard that. Share it. And I know there are lots and lots and lots of younger women in this church who crave that. Who just crave the modeling from the older women. Again, we need to pray. I'm really convinced that we don't pray enough. Pray for older men, pray for older women. That we might be a true representative of the, all the ages of this church. What about the younger women? How should your belief impact your behavior? I want to clarify a few things here. Uh, Paul assumes a culture where most women were married with kids. That was the norm. That was the norm in that culture. Uh, Number two, Paul is not, listen carefully, he's not addressing the career women. He's not addressing women in a secular workplace. That's not his purpose of writing. What he's addressing here is women in the church, younger women who are more worldly than they are Christian. Women who, in this culture, move from house to house, being idle and gossiping and bad-mouthing their husbands and slipping into morality. That was the issue. But I also want to say right up front that the biblical principle of, of wives submitting to their husbands, it's there in verse 
5, to be subject to your husbands, to submit to him, is found throughout the scriptures. It's not a cultural thing, it's a creation thing. It started a creation, model in the family, seen the church. It's not a negative thing, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. When the husband is loving his wife sacrificially and selflessly and he just wants what is best for her and the wife is trusting him and respecting him and, yeah, submitting. That's a beautiful thing. So what do the young women in, in Crete and in Kirbali need to be reminded of? Two things. Love and contentment. Verse 4, train the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. To love the man who you are promised to love to death you depart, depart, but he's frustrating you and annoying you and he's got all these habits that you just don't like and you need to be trained to love him. And you need role models to do that. I remember sitting at lunch uh, where a woman, this is back in Oxford again, a woman, I think she'd been married about 35 years. It was just an offhand comment, but it stuck with me. She said something like, oh, what was really important for, for me was to show my kids that I loved their dad, I loved their, my husband, and that he was the most important person to me. That just stuck with me. It's like a, this light bulb moment. Yeah, that's right, actually. Uh, so younger women, you know, don't resent your husband. If you're married, don't resent your husband. If you're married, don't gossip about your husband. If you've got children, yeah, be prepared to make costly, sacrificial, time-costly, hard decisions about jobs or houses or schools or sports or holidays that show your, your kids that you love them. But if you don't have a husband, and many of us don't have husbands, we don't have kids, what does Paul say? Verse 5, be self-controlled, be pure, be busy at home, be kind. I've summed that up in the word contentment. Be self-controlled, so think about what is right. Don't indulge in, overindulge in food or money or fashion. Just think with your mind what is going to be pleasing to God. Be pure, without blemish, without fault, this young, beautiful, godly woman. Here's the controversial one. To be busy at home. Uh, lots of different translations have tried to grapple with this. Uh, the King James Version says, keepers at home. The New American Standards Version says, workers at home. The New Living Translation says, take care of their homes. I reckon busy at home is probably the best one. He is not saying that all women need to stay at home. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something like this. He says, young women, uh, be, be a homemaker, don't be a homebreaker. That's kind of what he's saying. The women in Crete who, who are wandering around, uh, dissing their husbands, mucking around with other men, not being content with what they've got, not, look, not looking after their kids. He's saying, don't be a homebreaker, be a homemaker. And if God has blessed you with a husband and with kids, yet yeah, you'll work out what that looks like for your marriage. You'll work out how you will juggle all those things. But please, if God has blessed you with a husband and with, a kid, with kids, please don't neglect marriage and kids. Don't put career or financial stuff above marriage and kids. It would look different for every marriage. But we should be working hard. And we haven't got a husband or kids. Well, we're self-controlled, we're pure, and we're kind, and we're busy with whatever God's given us. And that's why I've called it contentment. Being content with where you are, being self-controlled and kind and pure. And young women of church, if you're doing that, what does Paul say, verse 5? Then no one will align the word of God. No one will look at our church and say, oh, there's young women there. They're in church on a Sunday, but actually they're just as flirtatious and just as immoral. And they're not kind at all. 
and actually their work is much more important than their husband and kids. That would be really sad. I want to, again, I'll get you to pray for younger women. I think that these commands to the younger women is the most countercultural of all the commands tonight. Because our society just, just refutes this. And God said, this is good. It's hard to be different. Young men, what do we need to learn? We're competitive, we're ambitious, we're selfish, we're, we're spontaneous. Is there a whole list of things that young men need to learn? I use the word us there. I like to see myself as a younger man. I was, I was doing a barber service a few weeks ago, and one person in my barber study turned to me and said, Paul, you see yourself as a younger man, don't you? And I went, yeah. And they went, oh, I thought he was the older man. I was like, oh, okay. Um, young men, what do we need to learn? One word. It's there in verse 6. Encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. The next two words actually belong with the same sentence, to be self-controlled in everything. Whatever you, you, you're facing in life, make sure you're being self-controlled in it. It's the repeated word for the older men, the older women, the, the younger, younger men. It literally means sober-minded, clear-headed. It means that younger men, we will think about, we'll meditate on things that are pure and lovely and right and godly. We'll be disciplined in what we think about and the way that we act. Uh, we'll be self-controlled uh, with our, our temper. We won't lash out. We'll be self-controlled with our ambitions. Yeah, we'll have plans, but they won't rule us. And we'll be self-controlled with our time and self-controlled with our, our sexual urges. If we're not married, we'll be chaste. If we are married, we'll be faithful. We'll be self-controlled with our lips and our tongue. We won't lie, we won't slander. This is a picture of these young men who are they're so different from the world because, because they're godly, because grace has gripped them. And the modeling comes from Titus. That's what he says, verse 7, in them set an example. Titus, by doing what is good, in your teaching, show, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. So young men here tonight, there are lots of young men out there tonight. If I was to say to you right now, what are the, what are the three things that you struggle with most in terms of control? If I just got you to write down now, the first three things that comes to your head, I struggle with, what would you write down? See, there are things to go away and meditate on the word of God and pray and be accountable for so that we as young men, you as young men, can model self-control. He goes on to talk about slaves. They were literally household servants. He's basically just saying there, don't retaliate, don't speak back, don't steal. The important thing is in verse 10, so that in every way, you will make the gospel attractive. In every way, the way that you relate at work will make the gospel attractive. And what you've got the picture here, friends, is grace that transforms a community. A lot of new churches and church plants call themselves Grace Church. Grace Church. It's a great name for a church because we're founded on grace. God has lavished his love on us. But we're a church full of grace, and grace transforms the way that we relate as family, as church. We're not blood relatives, but we are relatives in the blood of Jesus. 
and we should have lots of granddads and lots of dads and lots of uncles and lots of brothers and lots of sisters. And you should know where you fit in and how to relate. I saw this in action a few weeks ago. Uh, a pastor was preaching. He was a young man, probably about 35. Uh, and I'm older than that, Linda. Um, I was talking to someone after the service, and this woman, she said, oh, every time I hear him preach, I'm just reminded of how gracious God is. He's like a walking example of grace. He was such a wretched man 10 years ago. I thought, well, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> and I thought, no, that's not harsh at all. That's really beautiful. That she's seen the transforming work of, of, of grace in that man's life over that 10-year period. And then at this church, there's an older couple, and they weren't employed by the church, but they had young couples into their home every single week, young married couples. That was their ministry, just training the, young, the younger married couples how to be husband and wife, how to raise kids. They weren't paid for it. They just wanted to do it. And as you looked around this church, you just see these people just naturally relating as older and younger. And I just thought, wow, this is a church that understands grace. And that's a big question for us, church. By the way, we relate as a church family. Are we adorning the gospel? Remember? Belief, impact, behavior. Are we discrediting or making the gospel very attractive? When people look at our marriages, will they malign the word of God or say, God is wonderful? When they look at our lives, will they say, wow, there's nothing bad to say about them? And when they look at our church, will they say, there is something so attractive about those people? Ever had that experience where you've, you've seen something and you think, I want that? That's the power of advertising, isn't it? I want that. I need that. Wouldn't it be amazing if God made us a church when people walk through our doors and they would just go, I want that, I need that. Not us, but they need Christ. And they want a saviour. Because <laughs> by the way that we relate, we've made Jesus so attractive. I'm going to pray we be a church like that. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus and thank you for the way that he has transformed our individual lives and for the way he transforms our corporate lives. Uh, Father, thank you that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Thank you that we have seen the way that your spirit just uh, changes our hearts and changes our minds and changes us. Lord, thank you for this family. Thank you for every person you've brought here, old or young. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to live out what your word says. Uh, Lord, uh, forgive us for times we don't, but help us to press on. Uh, Lord, I do pray that uh, we as a church in this uh, community and in our family lives would be so adorning the gospel that people say, yeah, I want that and I need that. I'll set for Jesus' sake.